Rising. We have a stellar show planned for you today. Uh, actually, earlier, I already have done an interview with Senator Rand Paul uh, discussing that Moderna hearing we talked about on the show yesterday. Dr. Fauci, myocarditis, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I was up a little uh, too late riding my radar to join <laughs> with you this morning. I'm sorry I missed it, but I'm very excited to watch it myself. Well, that interview is already up on YouTube, so please check it out. But we have a lot of other exciting stuff going on in the show today. What's on deck first, Brianna? Well, the National Security Council's John Kirby again maintained the U.S. had nothing to do with last year's Nord Stream pipeline explosions. Let's watch. I think, as Mr. Sullivan uh, mentioned, there are three now. Uh, national investigations being done uh, into the Nord Stream 2 uh, explosion by three of our, our of our allies. We are not going to get ahead of that. That work is still ongoing. We still do believe it was an act of sabotage. Uh, the United States was not involved in any way, contrary to some press reporting out there. And journalist Seymour Hersh's most recent reporting on the pipeline attack, he writes, writes that the Biden administration continues to conceal its responsibility for the destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines. Hersh writes that two weeks after the German chancellor visited Washington, U.S. and German intelligence agencies attempted to discredit his reporting by feeding the New York Times and the German weekly Die Zeit false cover stories. Mm. Hirsch also reported in his recent Substack piece that no reporter for the White House press corps has asked White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre whether Biden had formally tasked the American intelligence community with conducting a Nord Stream investigation. Why not? Well, Hirsch says it's because President Biden already knows the answer. And yeah, I, I see why someone would reach that conclusion, having listened to what John Kirby says there, which is, well, yeah, they're, they're, Europeans are investigating. We're not going to do our own. We'll just let them do their thing. But why wouldn't we? If it, if it was something we genuinely didn't know the answer to, wouldn't we want to conduct our own investigation as well? Wouldn't we be genuinely curious? Wouldn't we be curious to, to, to learn more about, let's say we sincerely think we didn't do it and we sincerely think Russia did it. Don't we under, uh, want to understand how they pulled it off, what went into it yeah, uh, whole, for understanding our geopolitical foe? The whole rationale for the U.S. being involved, we, again, we right. don't have a treaty obligation with Ukraine. It has to do with our fundamental respect for borders and the global order and the rule mm -hmm. of law and all of these kinds of things. And things not getting blown up. Right. One of our, <laughs> one of our closest allies yeah. having an $11 billion project, uh, uh, infrastructure project, mm -hmm. Sabotaged would seem to me to be cause to look into it further. But reading the latest uh, Seymour Hirsch piece, he says that a, a source within the American intelligence community told him, quote, it was a total fabrication by American intelligence that was passed along to the Germans and aimed at discrediting your story, Seymour Hirsch's initial reporting. And so it, what's so interesting about this latest piece from him, he goes through the exact same um, episode of The Daily, the New York Times podcast, which had a very revealing interview between host Michael Barbaro and one of the authors of the what, what Hirsch is alleging is this fake cover-up story in the New York Times and points to the exact same section as a, that I pointed to in a radar last week as this really telling admission that the reporters at the New York Times who are looking into the story say, say, oh, we were looking at the wrong questions. The right questions to say not who, who could have done it, but who could have done it who wasn't a state actor. Really like catering their investigation in a direction that is very convenient to the America and our allies, who of course can't have their fingers on this for obvious reasons. No, absolutely. And, and look, it, and it could be we know, we already know who did it because it was the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian government 
Zelensky. Mm -hmm. That could be something we, we uh, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm totally sold without knowing more about, as, as I said, who specifically was Seymour Hersh's um, source mm -hmm. for the claim that it was specifically organized by, um, by, by U.S. forces, by U.S. divers, mm -hmm. et cetera. He, you know, he said he's seen, he has, he's seen, he's talked to someone who had documents who can explain how that all happened. Um, and I, I, you know, I can't judge that without being able to see them for myself. But, uh, but, but even, even the New York Times in that, that attempt to kind of distract from the Hirsch reporting, they have moved away from blaming Russia, which is what everyone was doing. Yeah, because that just now, couldn't stick. Now it's kind of, yeah, they, it's, it's acknowledgement that, okay, that story is not working. We got to find a different cover right. story if it is indeed a cover story. Right. So if it's not Russia, even though, you know, the no incentives line up for Russia, the incentives line up very much for ourselves and our allies, that's when you get the move to say it absolutely can't be a state actor because the only state actors that are reasonably implicated here from a motive perspective and an ability perspective are us or people who are so close to us that it would, mm -hmm. it would be um, difficult to see how it could be it could be done without any U.S. involvement, as Kirby has. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. Again, this is, <laughs> this is a very serious issue. We are not uh, we are not at war with Russia formally. We're not certainly not at war with Germany. Correct. Germany is an ally. <laughs> is a country is an ally of ours. Yeah. Um, for for if you if the U.S. military undertook this without the permission or even the the oversight from from not the entire Congress, but from members of Congress who are particularly involved in sensitive national security issues, who are briefed on classified operations, they were left in the dark. Yeah. I mean, this is this is a military operation without any oversight from Congress. Congress is supposed to be the body yeah. that declares war, and then they authorize the executive branch to carry out the war that they have have uh, have authorized. Actually, I talked to in my interview with Senator Paul. We mm -hmm. talked about um, the authorization of military force for the global war on terror, stemming from the early aughts uh, that he is trying to have repealed, and there was a vote to do so. Unfortunately, last night, mm -hmm. unfortunately, didn't go forward. Uh, he thinks the authorization granted from Congress to the president to carry out a global war on terror uh, ha should be should be. And it should, mm -hmm. should have expired uh, and has allowed the U.S. government to do all sorts of things that was beyond the scope of what the Congress back then intended and has not made us safer or the rest of the world safer. But Congress has totally forfeited its obligation in general to have oversight for foreign policy and military matters. Yes. And this, if this is what it appears to be, an action by the U.S. or one that we have knowledge of that we're now denying, uh, that is further evidence that... Congress does not exercise any meaningful oversight yeah. over the executive when it comes to foreign policy. They, they have switched roles. Again, it's supposed to be Congress is the is the branch with the power here, and they just the the, the president yeah. carries it out. And we don't. That's not how it works at all. And remember, we've also objected uh, to an independent UN investigation. I mean, if you are really saying no to every investigation with any kind of separation and independence from the parties that have been implicated or accused of being involved. That in and of itself is very suspicious. One other point I just want to mention from uh, Hirsch's recent reporting is that he really emphasizes what the economic consequences in terms of oil and gas prices uh, of the Nord Stream explosion were in Germany and why it's so important for German papers to be writing with a story that makes it clear that, oh, it wasn't our fault that this explosion happened or that we're not covering for allies that bombed this pipeline that caused uh, oil prices to spike so much in Germany after the attack. Um, he spoke to an energy expert uh, uh, about why the pipeline story was such big news in Germany and Western Europe, and she told him, quote, Nord Stream was blown up in late September. German gas imports peaked a month later in October at 10 times pre-crisis level, 10 times. Mm. We have been going through a whole media cycle in the United States about the rising cost of gas 
but nowhere near 10 times the previous um, levels in the middle uh, or the start of a winter season. I mean, this is exactly why Germany was under so much pressure to have this relationship, this energy relationship with Russia, and why allegedly, potentially, America felt like it couldn't rely on pressuring Germany to no longer be reliant on Russian oil, that it had to take matters into its own hands and prevent it from being reliant on Russian oil. Indeed. Well, we'll continue to follow that, and I'm looking forward to your radar, Brianna. That's coming up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, Unfortunately, we're all together too used to hearing government actors make excuses for their own incompetence, but it does seem like they're getting more and more absurd with the excuses they come up with. In the wake of the Silicon Valley bank run and bailout, the Wall Street Journal's own Andy Kessler, along with several conservative politicos like Ron DeSantis, attempted to blame wokeness for the bank's failure to anticipate the risks associated with holding large amounts of bonds during interests, periods rather, of high interest rates. But for most Americans of all political backgrounds, there really didn't seem to be much of a connection between the existence of, say, one black or gay person on the SVB board and the company's choice to go without a chief risk officer for most of last year. So now there's a new rationalization being bandied about by Democrat Barney Frank, one of the chief architects of the post-2008 Dodd-Frank legislation that was designed to prevent financial crises exactly like the one we experienced in 2008 and similar to the one that occurred earlier this month when SVB and Signature Bank went down. The argument? That there wasn't really a problem with the banks. Rather, the government merely chose to shut SVB and Signature Bank down because they have it out for crypto. All right, though it seems most financial experts blame a series of deregulatory actions taken under the Trump administration for the crisis, uh, deregulatory actions, by the way, which were supported by a number of Democrats, Barney Frank doesn't think his own legislation would have helped. In a series of interviews he's given since the banking crisis, he said that his own legislation that squarely would have required risk assessment for the very types of investments that tanked Signature Bank would not have changed the outcome. Quote, I don't think that had any impact, he told Politico. He said his bank's signature was in, quote, good shape, and that his bank was, quote, an unfortunate victim of the panic that really goes back to FTX. If it hadn't been for FTX and the extreme nervousness about crypto, this wouldn't have happened, says Frank. But is that merely a cope, as the kids say? Does Barney Frank have his own agenda? Now, keep in mind, after decades in Congress inveighing against the corruption and exploitation endemic to the financial industry, Barney Frank joined the board of Signature Bank, one of the two banks at the center of this crisis. In an interview with the New York Times that aired on their daily podcast on Tuesday, Frank claims that there was no conflict of interest. Here's how he described the bank's hiring pitch to him. So you were approached by Signature Bank. What was their pitch? They thought I was smart. Knew a lot about banking and had the right values. They also stressed to me that they were the leading user of the low-income housing tax credit. They knew that housing had been my single biggest substantive policy. Now, although Frank frames his choice to join the signature board in part is based on his longtime commitment to affordable housing, he goes on to admit that he thinks he deserves to participate in, in so-called revolving door politics because he sacrificed so much potential corporate lawyer salary as a Harvard Law graduate. I wanted to earn money. I had no pension. 
I had voluntarily decided not to get into the pension plan in 81. I didn't want to lobby. Uh, so I was looking to earn money. I had been making money from speeches, and I had a good advance. I got a half-million-dollar advance to write my memoir. But I was planning to live for many more years, and I was looking for an ongoing source of income. So about $325,000 a year, which I must say for, and you know, it sounds a little arrogant, but for an honors graduate of Harvard Law School, $325,000 a year is not an excessive salary. It would be refreshing if it weren't so galling, that honesty there. Frank earned over $2 million while serving on Signature's board for about seven years. So it's worth interrogating the timeline to see how all of these incentives actually lined up with each other. After playing a key role in post-2008 bank regulation, Frank retired from Congress in 2012. He joined Signature's board in 2015. In those last years of the Obama administration, Republicans had begun to focus on dismantling Dodd-Frank, and Frank was brought before Congress to defend the legislation, which he did. But importantly, he also included in his commentary the following unsolicited opinion, that the $50 billion cutoff for bank regulation under Dodd-Frank was too low, and that as a consequence, it caught up too many small banks that, in Frank's view, presented no real risk to the financial system. Remember, Frank was now on the board of a bank that was very close to reaching that $50 billion cutoff. Now, Republicans and some Democrats start citing Frank for this very proposition, that the $50 billion cutoff was a mistake. And when Trump took office and gained control of Congress, Frank's clout was weaponized to pass the deregulation that arguably caused Signature Bank's bank to go out of business earlier this month. The $50 billion cutoff was raised to $250 billion after the deregulation, and the number of banks that were regulated under Dodd-Frank went from a few thousand to 1,000. Moreover, the size of banks like Signature grew at a rapid pace post-deregulation. SVB quadrupled in size in four years. The size of Signature Bank, Barney Frank's bank, doubled. Now, Frank admitted in the New York Times interview that the original Dodd-Frank had kept the size of banks in check, but refused to acknowledge that the deregulation had any effect on this crisis. He wouldn't admit that liquidity requirements would have made a difference, or stress tests, or any of it. In fact, here's how he closed out the interview. One of the great pleasures of leaving elected office is that you are no longer uh, subject to an impact from the opinions of people whom you do not respect and do not know. You know, at this point in my life, uh, I don't care. <laughs> so there you have it. Another lesson in dodging accountability brought to you by one of America's uh, two corporate parties, this time a Democrat. Luckily, there are important reforms being pressed by some politicians who aren't focused on uh, what Barney Frank is calling a, a plot to uh, get, bring down crypto or wokeness gone amok. Bernie Sanders wants to ban bank CEOs from serving on regional Fed boards due to the conflict of interest there. The SVB bank chief sat on San Francisco's Fed board. And Elizabeth Warren is calling for an investigation into what really went wrong and for lifting the FDIC insurance cap. Still, it would be nice to see some critique from Democrats and Republicans alike about the pernicious consequences of revolving door politics and the complete impunity with which members of Congress use their positions to enrich themselves while lobbying against the interests of ordinary Americans. Yeah, the Barney Frank example seems particularly uh, <laughs> powerful, sets the regulations, uh, exits Congress, 
gets to be serve on the board of the bank uh, and is defiant about his right to make all sorts of money. Yep, it's it's really telling. Look, I think that he's kind of in his life. I think he got into politics for the right reasons, though. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing it to save low, low income housing. Yeah. Um, look, he, he's clearly in his like, I'm retired. I'm an older man. I'm in a, um, you know, honey badger doesn't give a Frank Fig, you know, I don't know if you remember that meme from a few years back. Like he's in that phase know. of his life where he just doesn't, he doesn't care. And so he's being weirdly honest and frank in these interviews. But people should take that as an opportunity to really see behind the curtain of what goes on in politics. I mean, we did an interview with um, Ro Khanna today, uh, and you know he had to go. But there were some other questions I had because he's been accused of you know lobbying Steve Rashetti directly at a gridiron dinner here in D.C. for the Biden administration to step in and bail out the SBB banks. He's a representative from Silicon Valley. His constituents there are very invested, for obvious reasons, in the survival and the bailout of these kind of financial institutions. But what does it mean when Ro Khanna is lobbying Steve Reschetti, who in turn was so criticized when Biden picked him to be a senior advisor because he himself had spent his entire career in the pharmaceutical industry, and the revolving door goes around and round and round. So, you know, you can't get away from this kind of stuff. I just wish at some point, when someone says something as honest and transparent as what Barney Frank said in this interview, there was some pushback. There was some critique from his former colleagues in Congress. Instead, it seems to be hands-off, because ultimately everyone's wanting to preserve their ability, potentially, to leave Congress and do the exact same thing. They made this horrible sacrifice of having to take just $175,000 a year in salary from the American and people. Look, I certainly don't want to destroy crypto. I, I have expressed a lot of interest in crypto as, as a way to um, get around, actually, the the ups and downs of the government-managed banking sector. Um, I, I think uh, I, I'm optimistic about the technology, you know, the kind of Sam Bankman-Fried catastrophe notwithstanding. So I think I would find it more plausible that this was like a concerted effort by big banks to crush uh, a rival. Um, I would be more persuaded by that if, if there wasn't the, you know, simping for bailouts going on mm -hmm. from a lot of people in the tech sector yeah, right now. And, and this is, is an important, important part of that hypocrisy. When Barney Frank was arguing that the $50 billion cutoff was too low and capturing too many small banks and that it should be raised, the argument that they were using was, these banks are too small to have the catastrophic effects across the entire American economic system the way the big banks that failed in 2008 did. So the, the express argument was, these banks are so small that it's it's okay, they don't need the same regulatory um, barriers on them because they can't really hurt the broader economy. And when the when they, when this crisis then happened and they were arguing for bailouts, the argument was flipped. You have to bail us out, or otherwise this is gonna have crazy effects across the American economy. And the hypocrisy is plain, you just can't have it both ways. Yeah. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Moderna CEO Stefan Bonsell was grilled before the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions yesterday. Now, our next guest supplied some of that grilling. Uh, he pressed the CEO on cases of myocarditis linked potentially to the COVID vaccine. Here's how he handled that. Let's watch. You're saying that for ages 16 to 24 among males who take the COVID vaccine, their risk of myocarditis is less than people who get the disease. That is my understanding. That is not true. And I'd like to enter into the record six peer-reviewed papers from the Journal of Vaccine, the Annals of Medicine, that say the complete opposite of what you say. I also spoke with your president just last week, and he readily acknowledged 
in private that, yes, there is an increased risk of myocarditis. The fact that you can't say it in public is quite disturbing. I'm joined this morning by Senator Rand Paul. Senator Paul, it's great to have you back on Rising. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be with you. And can you tell us more about the conversation you actually had with the Moderna pres uh, president uh, last week? Well, sometimes, you know, guest or part of a corporation will come in as a uh, courtesy visit in advance. He came in, we had a very pleasant conversation, very cordial conversation, and very much a give and take on, uh, you know, whether or not this should be pushed on children versus those who are at higher risk. And the president in private assured me that their main goal was targeting for sales the people who are at higher risk. And I asked him things like there are some compromise positions. I frankly wouldn't vaccinate my children for COVID because I think the risks of the vaccine are greater than the risk of the disease. The risks of the disease are almost non-existent. But let's say your position is somewhere in between. You think three is too many, what about one? Mm -hmm. Well, 90% of the myocarditis, which is admittedly rare, 90% of it comes after the second vaccine. Well, if your kids already had COVID, I don't think they need it at all. But let's say you wanna give them a vaccine and they've already had COVID, why not one instead of three? So I think it really is malpractice and this is a science where there is some uh, evidence on both sides to debate, but for goodness sakes, I don't think there's any evidence to give your kid three vaccines and that's what's being required because Fauci and other you know, folks in the public health community from the Biden administration, they come forward and say, oh, your kid needs three. So University of Chicago, Harvard, Yale, all these supposedly good schools are requiring three vaccines to enter and I think that's actually not good science, and it's actually against the scientific evidence that we have. Yeah, I'm a graduate of the University of Michigan, and I saw they, too, are going to require the bivalent. So that's three shots, or at least three, three or four shots um, in the fall. Uh, and, and also, he brought up, the, Stefan Bonsell he was comparing myocarditis from COVID versus from the vaccine. But of course, you know, the vast majority of people have had or will have COVID. So it's not, it's, it, those are not two things. You, you can have COVID and get the vaccine. Like, it's not comparing the same thing because you, you the, the likelihood of, of having to face the myocarditis risk from COVID is independent of whether you're going to get the vaccine because it's not going to stop you from getting COVID. Well, like so many scientific debates, there's been some evidence on both sides. So the CDC put forward some studies early on showing that they felt the incidence of COVID or myocarditis after recovering or while recovering from COVID was greater than the vaccine. But what they did is they compared it to the general population. And so if you compare COVID uh, myocarditis after having the virus of COVID to the general population, it was about equal or not much difference. If you select out 16 to 24 year old males, lo and behold, it's like 30 times greater yeah. for those who've been vaccinated. So it was just bad science. And it's not, it's not making the acknowledgement that people are different based on their age. Not only are their risks different, their reactions are. So there's also studies now showing the kids or young males that get myocarditis, their free floating S protein. This is what the mRNA tells your body to make. The S protein from the coronavirus is off the charts. And for some reason, they just get a hyperreactive uh, you know, response to the vaccine. But the other thing people should know is it's very important that if your child is just recovering from COVID, they have an enormous immune response going on. If you vaccinate them when they're still in the recovery period, you could double up on that enormous immune response, mm. and that's what causes the myocarditis. I think there's been insufficient warning and insufficient discussion by public health doctors as to, 
you know, if your child's already had COVID, immediately going, and I've had doctors tell people on my staff, young people on my staff that have recovered from COVID, have you learned your lesson? Are you going to go get immunized now? And my, my staff members, a lot of times will respond to them, well, yeah, I just got immunized. That's what the infection <laughs> was. But uh, it's, yeah. it's actually medically not advised to immediately get a, a vaccine after you've just recovered from having COVID, particularly mm. for young people. Well, Senator, we want to give you a chance to respond to something Dr. Fauci said about you uh, during this uh, documentary uh, about him that was just released this week. Rand Paul was insidiously throwing into his little questions that the work that was done in the Wuhan lab, funded by a small grant from NIH, a strong implication that that created a virus that made COVID. I have 10,000 grants throughout the world. What they've done is that they've looked at various grants and they make something of it that it isn't. The microbe they were working on not only was not SARS-CoV-2, it would be molecularly impossible for them to turn it into SARS-CoV-2. They were so different. It's kind of like you have a Chevrolet and you got a motorcycle. And you say, I want to make that Chevrolet into the motorcycle. No matter what you do to that Chevrolet, you're not going to make it into a motorcycle. Like, what are you talking about? Can't turn a car into a motorcycle? Case closed. Uh, This research could not have caused COVID. Does that make sense to you? Well, he's arguing a straw man argument. We have never argued that anything that's been published by the Wuhan lab became COVID-19. What we are arguing is that the lab in Wuhan has over 100 coronaviruses that they've manipulated in lab and have not published. We also know that in 2018, they asked the U.S. government for money to do research where they would take a coronavirus and insert a furin cleavage site. A furin cleavage site is a special part of the S protein that allows the virus to infect humans easier. And DARPA turned them down. This is an agency of the Defense Department because they thought it was too dangerous. But we know they were asking to do this, and a year later, a year and a half later, lo and behold, we get COVID-19. And what is COVID-19? A coronavirus with a furin cleavage site. So we turn up with a very unusual virus that's not been seen in nature before that is exactly what they asked us to create a year before. Coincidence? In the city where most all of the world's coronaviruses are stored? Coincidence? I mean, there's just too much going on here. And what we want to do is look at all of the grants, and I've been petitioning the State Department, NIH, HHS, um, Defense Department, you name it. I've been trying to get information on all of these grants because I want to know what else was either rejected or funded. Dr. Fauci is disingenuous. He is conflicted. And the reason he is conflicted is that if this came from the lab that he funded, he shares culpability. And he's been trying to cover this up from the beginning. There's a great deal of information that from January of 2020, in the early days, a cover-up began, and it continued for Fauci's entire uh, term in office. Senator, before we let you go quickly, I want to note that last night the Senate voted uh, not to advance your amendment that would end congressional authorization for the use of military force in the global war against terror, turning back your effort to repeal that uh, 2001 measure. Um, Can you talk about that? I'm sure it's disappointing. Yeah, I've been trying to stop the forever wars, the forever authorizations for war. And most of these are dependent on the 9-11 proclamation. 
So when we were attacked on 9-11, Congress came, debated, and said, we will go after and declare war on those who attacked us and anybody who harbored them. Well, over the years, that was transformed by people who wanted to continue wars in various parts of the, of the world to mean and justify every war. And so the only way we'll stop the involvement of war in about 20 different countries is to repeal the 9-11-2001 authorization for force. Now, the bill that's currently before us, my amendment failed, and I'm disappointed, but the bill before us will repeal the Iraqi resolution, the one to say that we are authorized to fight against Saddam Hussein's Iraq. And the interesting thing about the absurdity is that war's been over for 20 years, that resolution's very specific to Hussein, and we still can't get some of these neocons to vote for it. You've got these unrestrict, unreconstructed war hawks who are still for keeping the Iraqi resolution, claiming that it has something to do with Iran. And so I think it'll be good when we finally do, and I think we have the votes to repeal the Iraqi resolution against Hussein, symbolic as it may be, but it's disappointing that we're going to leave one on the books that still allows soldiers to be around the world fighting a continuous war. And my fear is that this vote will be largely symbolic and not one soldier comes home and not one soldier's life is saved because of this, but at least it's a beginning of the debate. Mm. Senator Paul, thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you. More rising right after this. As Donald Trump faces a potential indictment, the former president has unleashed personal attacks against investigators, the Democratic Party, and even fellow Republicans. According to the New York Times, he accused Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg of being a woke tyrant who was destroying Manhattan. He has also called his Democratic opponents animals and thugs, again, according to the New York Times. Now, Democratic Representative Ro Khanna joins us now to weigh in on this potential indictment of Donald Trump. Welcome, Representative. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What are your feelings about this potential indictment relating to the alleged hush money payments involving Stormy Daniels? Um, you know, I think there is, I have heard at least some concern, even from Democrats and Democratic-leaning commentators, that, you know, the precedent, uh, no one should be above the law, obviously, a, a former president, a current president, whatever the case may be. but. Violating the, the precedent of not, you know, going after a former president um, on, on this issue, which doesn't seem quite, it seems to be a little bit shakier legal grounds or shakier, I guess, importance level than even some of the other things Donald Trump is facing. What are your thoughts on the issue? Well, first, I don't think that members of Congress or senators should be commentating uh, on the judicial process. Let it play out. Let it uh, uh, the facts uh, take place. People should be making independent decisions. And I actually have a lot of faith in our judicial process and our jury system for there to be a fair outcome. Uh, so I don't prejudge what the outcome would be. I do think in the scheme of things, the most serious uh, concerns that I have with the president's conduct was on January 6th, uh, what he did uh, leading up to the insurrection and some of the interference on, on the elections and that has been uh, what I have criticized most. Yeah, I mean, to that end, I, I appreciate not wanting to comment on ongoing investigations, but several other, you know, Democrat-sympathetic commentators like Van Jones have pointed out that this is an issue precisely because there is a more uh, substantive uh, case being uh, built against him in Georgia, it's presumed, um, and that, uh, to your point, 
that is what arguably people should be focused on. And if people are focused on what appears to be a politically motivated uh, indictment out of uh, New York, then it's, one, not going to inure to the long-term benefit of the Democrats, because it's not going to be success successful. And two, it will enable Donald Trump to present, position himself as the victim. He has already made $1.5 million in the three days after he claimed uh, uh, falsely on Truth Social that he would get arrested on Tuesday. Uh, Trump's 2024 campaign confirmed this amount to Fox News. And that money was raised from grassroots donations. Is there a concern that the Democrats are basically helping Donald Trump fundraise without getting very much on their end politically out of this indictment. Well, it's sad to me that in today's modern political climate, you basically have to be either kicked off your House committee or have a potential indictment to raise money. I mean, that's more a commentary on uh, our times. I, I guess, look, Brianna, I have never in my seven years of com Congress commentated uh, or, or commented or, about a district attorney in my own district, any district attorney, I just don't think it's appropriate for members of Congress who have political influence to be saying whether someone should or should not uh, be bringing charges against anyone. It should be legally based, fact based. I will say this, that I have tremendous faith in the American judicial process uh, to sift through a lot of the, the noise. And if a prosecutor overreaches, uh, I don't think they get a conviction. And my guess is that any prosecutor is only going to want to bring a case that they can win. Well, speaking of money and politics and fundraising, you know, some people have looked with some scrutiny over your choice to uh, have a fundraiser hosted by uh, David Sachs. He is, you know, a Silicon, one of these Silicon Valley uh, billionaires who, uh, you know, has been very supportive of the bailout of SVB and the other banks that were involved in the crisis over the weekend. You have been clear that you think that there is an inequity between how these banks are able to get relief quickly and other populations like student debtors face a much more uphill battle uh, getting uh, congressional or executive approval for relief. However, we're supportive ultimately of the, the, uh, the government's involvement in the bailout here. How do you square what do you say to people who have concerns that t participating in a fundraiser, having a fundraiser hosted for you by someone who has such different political interests as yours, someone who has also uh, financially supported candidates like uh, J.D. Vance and Ron DeSantis, is a conflict of interest? Well, I find actually the criticism perplexing. It's coming from two places, one from uh, Hillary Clinton support. And David Sachs gave almost $40,000 to Hillary Clinton in 2016. Mm. Uh, and so I find it odd how they're criticizing me when uh, he supported Hillary Clinton. And then for progressives and the some of the progressives, and I find that odd because if you, I've been criticized for my stance on Ukraine, uh, and uh, I strongly support Ukraine and have supported the president's policy. But if you look at what sparked part of David Sachs' support, he tweeted out that he was going to support me because I was one of the few people in the congressional progressive letter who said we need to have dialogue as well. And that's really the genesis of uh, the support. And it's the public record. Someone can just look at Twitter and when he says he's going to support me and why and the First Amendment. And so I guess the question is, uh, should we not have support, even though we may disagree on 80 percent of issues 
uh, if we agree on certain issues. I, I think that's the wrong type of standard for American politics. I think the progressive response would be, you know, and you know this as someone who was a co-chair of the Bernie Sanders campaign, that Bernie took the position that taking money from these kind of donors was kind of uh, on its face, de facto, a negative influence in the campaign, and that it created a relationship that would undermine the principal's ability to pursue other issue, issue areas on which you might not agree, and that because it might jeopardize potentially the, the money flow. Do you disagree with Bernie's framing on why he rejected all uh, corporate money and even returned the one billionaire donation he got from the one progressive heir to the Disney fortune? Well, I have taken uh, the position, look, I don't take any PAC money, zero. I'm one of seven or eight members of Congress that does that. I don't take any lobbyist money. An individual's contribution is limited to uh, $6,600, which sounds like a lot, but in the context of millions of dollars, it's highly diluted. And I don't think any individual is uh, really in any way makes, has influence on, on my decisions. That is evidenced by the fact that, honestly, uh, the, the head of Silicon Valley Bank had contributed a couple thousand bucks to me years ago, which we returned, uh, and I still voted against his exact position, which he was lobbying for on deregulation. So I think if you look at my voting record, I have never uh, taken a position because of the influence of money. I guess my position is similar uh, to what President Obama had, where he did not take PAC money, he did not take lobbyist money, he did take individual contributions, uh, and I feel comfortable with, with that position. I admire Bernie Sanders. Look, Bernie Sanders uh, is a saint of American politics. He never solicited, in my understanding, a single contribution uh, from anyone his entire political career. Uh, and uh, that's, that's great for, for his standard. I have not, I don't pretend to have lived up to that standard, but I, my standard is uh, much better than the vast majority of people in Congress. Well, Representative Kano, we got to let you go. Thank you so much for uh, being here and always for making yourself so available to us. We appreciate how transparent Thank you. Um, you are as opposed to so many others in Congress. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. TikTok CEO Shuzi Chu is testifying before the House Committee on Energy and Commerce as we speak. He was just asked whether the Chinese government has access to TikTok data. Let's watch. As I said in the opening statement, our plan is to move American data to be stored on American soil I by the American that. company. I understand that, but, uh, uh, but you're sidestepping, or I haven't read anything uh, in terms of uh, TikTok how you can actually say, and you spoke in your opening statement about a firewall relative to the data. But the Chinese government has that data. How can you promise that uh, that, that will move into, uh, into the United States of America and be protected here? Uh, Congressman, I have seen no evidence that the Chinese government has access to that data. They have never asked us. We have not provided. Well, you know what? I have I asked that, that I find that actually preposterous. I have uh, looked in, I have seen no evidence of this happening. Mm -hmm. And in order to assure everybody here and all our users, our commitment is to move the data in, into the United States to be stored on American soil by an American company, overseen by American personnel. So the risk will be similar to any government going to an American company asking for data. Yesterday, Chu posted a message on TikTok ahead of his showing on Capitol Hill where he appealed to American users. Let's watch. Some politicians have started talking about 
banning TikTok. Now, this could take TikTok away from all 150 million of you. I'll be testifying before Congress later this week to share all that we're doing to protect Americans using the app and deliver on our mission to inspire creativity and to bring joy. Let me know in the comments what you want your elected representatives to know about what you love about TikTok. I thought that direct appeal was fascinating and frankly, good strategy. Look, he presents as very reasonable in these clips and so far in the hearings, uh, you know, he points out that half of Americans are on TikTok. Uh, the majority of Americans uh, support TikTok, only 40%, a little bit over 40% of Americans support banning TikTok. And he's basically teeing up this political question. Are politicians willing to get in, the, in between TikTok users uh, and their phones and cast themselves as the mm -hmm. enemy that are preventing people from making these kind of free choices about the apps they use. So there's a lot going on here, a lot I want to say on this subject. Um, look, I am not naive. I am very critical uh, and skeptical of the Chinese government. Um, I, I would not put it past them to, uh, to put pressure on TikTok. To, uh, to censor content that makes China look bad. I would not, you, you can point to all sorts of things. They don't, they don't allow TikTok actually in the country, in China, mm. to the same extent it's allowed here. Um, so maybe people said, well, do they think there's something wrong with it? They don't let their own people consume it the way they let Americans consume it. And the, the data, the capturing our data thing, it theoretically is a huge concern, although, as he's pointed out and many of others have pointed out, there's actually no evidence that they have tried to possess this data. So I am, but I am, Look, I am concerned. I'm not saying I'm not concerned. But everything we're talking about, theoretically, that the Chinese government could do that's bad on TikTok, the U.S.'s government is doing to a far more alarming degree on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, et cetera. We've seen it over and over again. The, the FBI, the CDC, the State Department, well, let's, DHS. Let's probe that comparison just a little yeah. bit. Because the argument that's being made by the Twitter files isn't that, you know, the U.S. government has direct access to uh, user information, DMs, things like that, but that it is able to kind of use a pressure campaign yes. to coerce Twitter to do its bidding without it actually pulling the strings itself. FBI agents have sat at their computers fl searching for accounts, they, saying things they don't like, flagging them for content, content moderators and saying, maybe do something about this. Sure. Maybe do something about this. And that's important yeah. for all of the reasons that we've talked about as we've covered the Twitter I find that to be files. a lot worse. <laughs> well, the, it feels to me like the, the argument that's being made by some of the Congress members in the clips that we watched has more to do with the Chinese government having access mm -hmm. to data in the first instance. The idea that it would have direct access to, you know, DMs, personal information and things like that within the app at a much more significant degree than what is being alleged of our intelligence agencies. And not, not that, I'm, mm -hmm. you know. This is in no way meant to be uh, absolution for our intelligence agencies. But my question is, you know, what is the evidence? Is, there, is that presumed because of the more, you know, authoritarian nature of the Chinese government, that there aren't any barriers whatsoever and that the Chinese mm -hmm. government can basically do whatever it wants in TikTok? Is there any evidence that that's the case? And is it fair for American politicians to be making that presumption in the absence of more? And if they do, is the, is the implication that Americans should never use any technology that isn't American-based technology? Or is China being called out in, in particular and America wouldn't have the same problem with a, a German-owned app or Botswana app or whatever it was? Well, right. I mean, the I think the reason so many in Congress are concerned is because it is so popular. It is it is wildly popular, popular among young people. It's their preferred social media app. And it, it's as if 
you know, the Chinese government has direct sway, could theoretically have sway over the do, you know the dominant the thing everybody is but what consuming. What is this sway? I mean, not putting a well, but I've seen what American it. countries have or what American government has done to our companies. So I, I see, and I mean, they have made those choices. They they have uh, absolutely. There was censorship of topics relating to COVID during the pandemic. All sorts of things that they say. I mean, I mean, they the Chinese government has done this with with American companies trying to come into uh, to the Chinese market. They told Google exactly which topics it had to censor. You can't search for pictures of Winnie the Pooh. On, yeah. on Google and China. In China. So it's but, uh, but these are but these are different yeah. questions. I mean, I can sit here and have all the opinions in the world about what kind of free speech regime should exist in China. I'm not Chinese. That doesn't yeah. really bear. I don't have any bearing on that and that outcome. But the question is whether or not Americans in America can use an yeah. app that happens to be made in another country, and if they are willing, if they are not um, imposing the, their kind of speech standards on American users. Then what is the issue? And moreover, what every single app, every single um, uh, kind of uh, content-based app is going to be making moderation decisions. Mm -hmm. We talked about this at length because of the Twitter files. One hundred percent. And people are going to come to differences of opinions about which mod moderation decisions are appropriate. I and, the, and the outcome of those decisions is going to inform what information is out there in the world one way or the other, whether or not it's nefarious, right? Yeah. So is, if, if we're going to look skeptically at every content moderation decision that's made by an app because it happens to be based in a country that we have a geolo a geopolitical tensions with, are we basically just saying that you can only, Americans are only going to be allowed to use apps developed in America? No, and there should be content moderation. It just shouldn't be dictated to the companies by governments, whether it's the Chinese government or the American. And is government. there is there evidence of that? Is the is the is the pushback that uh, she was giving given there? Well, if, in, if he's in saying, America, I, not in China, in America. Data. So he's denying that the data is being collected by the Chinese yeah. government. I do not think he has denied that the Chinese government influenced what was allowed to appear on the platform point. because there, they are because Frank. If he said that, he's lying because it, they have. They well, clearly have. But, but in America, that's the thing. He's yes, in America. What what is what is the help, help me understand? What is the evidence that China? What how it has China done to influence the content seen by American users? I, I just told you on COVID, they they turned that you couldn't. They they made COVID topics disappear very early on. They they do topics related to all sorts of things. In a way that wasn't encouraged by the American government. In, encouraged by it was encouraged by the Chinese government. Okay. I mean, like, it seems to be... But it is here, what the, but I agree with you that it is what so, the American government does. The, the argument is that we, that American users can't use TikTok because the Chinese government was disappearing COVID news the same way that yes. the American government on TikTok... That's why on, it's hypocritical. ...on Twitter was disappearing COVID news. You, it's not that you have to show... It's not that the obligation is to show the influence. My point is, every app... Is going to be making content moderation decisions. You can you can push back at them. You can be angry at them, and we are, including ones in America. I'm angry but at what's the government pressure. But what's being which is happening in the United States of America? Yes, the, the issue here isn't the government pressure. It obviously isn't because no one's these people are not trying to ban tic, uh, Twitter. In fact, they want to use Twitter for their own political means. They want to ban China because of the implication that there's something nefarious about the way that China is using the, the app that inures to their geopolitical national yeah. benefit. And well, I just want to put a, a finer point on what that actually looks like. So we're not in the realm of these kind of claims that because a handful of Russian bot accounts were talking about America's nasty history against black Americans, that that somehow was you know, inappropriately affecting the well, outcome I mean, of the 2016 election. The Republicans election. have held a lot of hearings about the censorship 
being wielded by the U.S. government against American companies. It, it seems like maybe the Democrats only care that it's China. Because and so this this ban TikTok move is totally bipartisan, and Democrats and Republicans are marching in lockstep on this. They all think it's a good idea. Yes, I think it's a little bit of misdirection from the really serious concerns about the people in that same chain. Anna Eshu was the one who asked. She's a Democratic representative. She asked that TikTok CEO about uh, about the data collection. Says she didn't believe him, et cetera. But she's the one who she sent a letter to um, all sorts of um, uh, platforms that provide entertainment, saying, "How dare you carry Newsmax?" So she absolutely thinks it is right and proper for governments to censor con or to to ask very pointed questions that direct companies to engage in censorship. Um, she just doesn't like the Chinese government. And was there at any point when COVID censorship was happening a direction from the U.S. government saying, I don't want you to suppress this? Has there been any dialogue where the America, America was a critical of the content moderation decisions that TikTok was making for U.S. users and TikTok said, absolutely not, we're going to ignore the interests of the American know. government? Because that, to me, that is also crucial. I, I would say some of the things that have been brought up are, are good ideas. I, I think the data being transferred to U.S. shores would be, is going to would be good for for addressing a lot of these concerns. Some of the the kind of plan put forward to work with the U.S. government to not have some of these concerns about the Chinese government's acquiring of the data or influence will be good, and, and then don't, don't go down the road of, of, ban of banning something that, look, even if you think there are some problems, this is, it's so popular among young people. It is one of the dominant ways they get their news. I mean, th that they get news that we, we want them to consume. Our, our show doesn't happen to be very active on TikTok, <laughs> but imagine it was. And we'd be saying it's a good thing yeah. that uh, young people lose access to uh, an, you know, an independent, non-establishment uh, news source that does well on the platform. Businesses do, you know, make tons of money from advertising on the platform. You know, small businesses are created with a TikTok model. So I, I worry about just the blow to people's finances. I, I, I worry about the blow to young people's ability to consume news. Like, are you going to attract young people to your political party or your political yeah. movement if you take away one of their favorite things? And it's also, and for all the concerns we have about social media being bad for young people in terms of their mental health, um, look, TikTok actually addresses some of the, the legitimate issues with Instagram in terms of uh, young women have, some young women have mental health issues because of the very kind of surface, mm -hmm. vein, you know, the, the oh, everyone looks prettier than I am kind Filters of thing going on on Instagram. TikTok is more sensitive. TikTok's a lot more collaborative mm -hmm. and social. People, you know, react to other people's mm -hmm. videos. Um, I think it actually does address a lot of those problems. Yeah, so. fundamentally, I just don't, I, I, I'm having a trouble with all of the hand-wringing here when all of our major news institutions are owned by billionaires with a very clear agenda with sponsored articles uh, who are doing headlines like, isn't it good to make more Americans unemployed? Oh, don't look over here that I'm also the CEO of the biggest company in the world. Like, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not that I don't think that there are potential issues, but it does really seem like missing the forest for the trees if we're talking about corporate propagandists for Versus like a national propagandist who are affecting our politics and the the kind of uh, information that is circulating through our society. This seems like a very narrow lens to try to get into that issue when our actual stated news organizations are owned by people whose interests are as uh, dissimilar from what average Americans need and want, as I would argue, yeah. the CCP. My, my point is that the pe very people in that room right now who are so mad and worried about TikTok have they have or or the government bureaucracies that they fund and direct and control have done the same level of nefariousness and censorship if not more so yeah. to twitter facebook google etc and let's 
let's <laughs> let's not lose the forest for the trees. Let's not get misdirected on some China ban because we're concerned yeah. about that. Yeah. More rising after this. CEO for pharmaceutical giant Moderna, Stefan Bancel, testified before the Senate Health, Education, and Labor and Pensions Committee yesterday, where he responded to questions about the drug maker's COVID vaccine and why it plans on quadrupling the price of his COVID-19 vaccine. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and other lawmakers grilled Bancel about this astronomical price hike. Here's a little of that exchange. My question to you is given the fact that you have made billions of dollars, that your company has made huge profits, on behalf of the taxpayers of this country, will you reconsider your decision to quadruple the price of the vaccine? So Chairman Sanders, what we have to do is to deal with the complexity I described, and I'm happy to go into more detail for this hearing. This is not the same product. In the pandemic market, we had one vial with 10 doses in there. In the endemic market, what the market requires is single-dose vial, or even better, pre-filled syringe. On top of all this, we're expecting a 90%, 9-0, reduction in demand. As you can see, we're losing economies of scale. The new sticker price to get the shot will likely come as a surprise to many Americans, but equally shocking is the fact that they could be stuck paying the tab for Madeira's unpaid licensing fees from its coronavirus vaccine. Advocacy groups are pushing back against the proposed 400 percent price hike. They say the vaccine should be free, maintaining the public already helped fund its development. Here representing one such advocacy group is Peter Maberduke, the director of Public Citizen. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here with you. Yeah, great to have you on. Uh, what was your reaction to uh, this hearing where the CEO faced aggressive questioning along these lines from Senator Sanders? Well, it was excellent to see Bunsell get some comeuppance. The NIH Moderna vaccine is a triumph of public science, federal investment, uh, a partnership uh, uh, through several years in which we, the people, funded and developed pioneering discoveries, scientific discoveries, technological discoveries, patented inventions, in fact, on which Moderna relied to bring this vaccine to market. So this is really the people's vaccine. But Moderna has broken faith with the National Institutes of Health and others in spiking prices and being a truly recalcitrant partner in the effort to stamp out global COVID. Here in Washington, they've got a terrible reputation um, for stubbornness. And we're, we're, we're tremendously disappointed by the price spike, but we're heartened by stand, uh, Senator Sanders' questioning. So, Peter, on one level, I am heartened, as I often am when it comes to Senator Sanders, that he is leading the charge on these issues when so much of Congress is silent. But to your point, if Moderna already has his reputation of uh, kind of bullying Congress in this way, if our pharmaceutical industry as a whole has this reputation of relying on government-invested uh, investment and kind of socializing research and development, and then um, capitalizing on the enormous profits. If you see here that they are now trying to quadruple the price of a vaccine that the government for three years has told us is life-sustaining, life-saving, crucial to the continuing of the economy and to putting all this money behind people getting, uh, getting their shots. How were they able to get away with it? Because this seems like a perfect storm of finally getting some accountability for one of these institutions. Why is it that it seems like very few Congress members, including Bernie Sanders, are actually highlighting this particular issue? 
Well, we do have a structural problem uh, in our government where the pharmaceutical industry deploys about two lobbyists for every member of Congress statistically, and it produces these outcomes. Um, it is true, for example, much as we should be focused on the price spike now, it's also true that this is a problem we could have fixed as a country had we negotiated harder with Moderna in the first place and insisted on reasonable pricing and access conditions in the initial vaccine contracts. We, the people, fund about $40 billion in biomedical research annually through the National Institutes of Health. Those medicines are then commercialized by drug companies, typically on a monopoly basis with monopoly protections we give them. And we ask far too little in return. So we should both in Congress and in the administration be pushing hard to in insist on reasonable pricing as a condition hmm. of the of the uh, of the reliance on public inventions and federal financing that we're giving these companies. Fortunately, there's some opportunities to make those changes in the months ahead, um, but we're behind the ball on Moderna. Nevertheless, Moderna's got to hear the message. They're an outrageous bad actor. It's not just a 400% price spike; it's a 4,000% price over the cost of production. We think this vaccine can be made for three dollars a dose. So it's time for Moderna to start being a good, fa good faith actor and, and, and playing ball with our effort to stamp out the coronavirus. Hmm. I know it's come up in these hearings, too, uh, whether there's an incentive from a regulatory standpoint to improve them or to mandate them in certain cases because of the, the, the kickback, the kind of royalties that some of the people involved can collect and whether that creates a conflict of interest. Do you have any comment on that? Well, there, there is an issue. There's a revolving door problem and a problem where, you know, for example, NIH, the, the, the uh, recent, now departed National Institutes of Health Director Francis Collins, for example, has been invested in medical technologies. There's, there is, there's an issue around royalties coming back um, to individuals, but we want the federal government uh, to, to get royalties on, on its inventions. That, that part's not you know, the federal government should be raising money from the contributions it's making to these discoveries. But what we really want is the federal government to insist that when we invest in a technology, that it be available, accessible to everyone everywhere. No one should have to worry about uh, not being able to pay out of pocket for a vaccine. The global uh, COVID relief effort should be able to rely on conditions that we have negotiated, ensuring that everyone will be able to get a vaccine. And that's where we've been falling down. Peter, you mentioned that there are opportunities in the coming months to right this ship. What are those opportunities? Well, for one, there needs to be a new, there, we're awaiting appointment of a new director at the National Institutes of Health. That is a potentially powerful office that could change the political economy of our relationship with the pharmaceutical industry, where we don't just uh, give away, give away the store, but rather we insist that there are going to be fair terms and, and conditions. And there's also more that we can do on pricing. There's an effort underway to strengthen the negotiation provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act. We should, we should support that. But there was a really disappointing development just two days ago where the Biden administration had the opportunity to authorize generic competition with an extremely expensive patented cancer drug mm -hmm. and decline. The, the, our federal government has the opportunity to introduce affordable generic competition with expensive patented drugs essentially at any time for particular purposes and programs and doesn't do so, does not use the, the authority it has to ensure affordable medicine. So we are very disappointed in the, the recent uh, Biden administration decision on a drug called Extandi and it's material to cases like Moderna and others. If we want to really make medicine affordable and really challenge the power of the pharmaceutical industry, 
we have to be serious about patents. We have to be serious about embracing the power of the federal government to put limits on the monopolies that we create. I mean, Peter, are you surprised by this latest Biden administration move uh, over the cancer drug, given, I mean, you mentioned the revolving door, door earlier. Biden's senior advisor, Steve Reschetti, was a former pharmaceutical industry lobbyist for much of his career. Now he's the right-hand man of the president, advising him, presumably, on some of these very issues. I mean, how optimistic are you about this NIH placement, actually being someone who is going to advocate for kind of the uh, pricing um, uh, uh, solutions that you are advocating for here? today, and why do you think there isn't more public pressure around appointments like Steve Reschetti's uh, and others who have this kind of conflict of interest? Sure. Well, we were disappointed, if not surprised, in the cancer drug uh, decision. We know that there are competing voices with the, in the administration about it. Not everyone sees these issues uh, the same way. So we were hoping that our side would win out and, it, and did not, and that's disappointing. But it's true, of course, there is a terribly cozy relationship with the industry um, for far too many officials in government and sort of Washington culture in, generally, in general. There's been a significant change uh, in the politics of this issue over the past 10 years. Uh, there was a time when the pharmaceutical industry and the outrage over drug pricing has grown tremendously in recent years. And mm -hmm. I think Washington is still catching up to the American people who are on a bipartisan basis, totally fed up with the profiteering and give it no credence whatsoever. But it's, we're still a little behind the ball here in uh, making sure that, that that perspective runs as clearly through government as it does through public understanding. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you. Thank you. data released by an international team of virus experts states the genetic data taken from the Huanan seafood market in January of 2020 potentially links the illegal sale of raccoon dogs to the animal origin transmission of COVID-19, which would then support the theory that the wet market was not just a super spreader event, but where COVID originated from. Now, if you're like me and just only recently learned what a raccoon dog is, don't fret. Here to weigh in on these new findings is quantitative biologist Justin Kinney. Welcome, Justin. Well, thank you, uh, Brianna and Robbie, for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Uh, so we've previously this week we interviewed um, Dr. Robert Redfield, formerly of the CDC, who uh, is one of many voices disputing that this new information actually points to raccoon dogs being the the origins of of COVID nineteen. What have you made of the the new reporting on this that that seemed to move things more back into the wet market camp? So uh, I should admit, like for scientists like me, it's been a pretty strange and confusing week. So last Thursday, The Atlantic published an article titled The Strongest Evidence Yet That Animals Started the Pandemic. Later that day, The New York Times published an article titled New Data Links Pandemic's Origins to Raccoon Dogs at the Wuhan Market. Then a slew of similar stories in other mainstream media outlets soon followed, many strongly suggesting Salt, that solid scientific evidence had been uncovered that the COVID-19 pandemic was started by an animal um, at the Hunan seafood market in Wuhan, China, specifically that the pandemic was started by the, a raccoon dog. Um, the actual research um, study described in these media reports, however, um, wasn't made publicly available until Monday. Hmm. So um, the key thing that your viewers should know 
is that the research described in this new study is far, far less definitive than media reports have suggested. To put it simply, the new study is a nothing burger. The study itself provides no new meaningful information about the origins of COVID-19. No data in the study shows that a raccoon dog or any other animal started the COVID-19 pandemic. In fact, no data in the study shows that any animals at the Hunan seafood market were even infected with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. So what the new study does show is that certain animals were present at the Hunan seafood market right before the outbreak. Now, this was largely already known thanks to the work of Chinese researchers who happened to be surveying animals prior to the pandemic for you know, a different research project. The new study does provide more granular information about which specific species of animals were sold at which specific locations within the market. But that is it. There is no evidence presented in the study that any of these animals were ever infected with SARS-CoV-2, much less that any of these animals started the pandemic. So you might be wondering, well, what's this about raccoon dogs? So the focus of this study on raccoon dogs is a classic example of cherry picking. The researchers analyzed genetic material from 73 samples, all of which tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. But they then focus on one of these samples called Q61 because that sample had a high prevalence of genetic material from raccoon dogs. As far as I can tell, the only rationale for focusing on this one sample out of 73 samples um, is that the, the researchers themselves have previously proposed the raccoon dogs were potentially the source of uh, the virus. Hmm. Uh, so, they proposed this in a publication. So am, I, am I understanding this right? There's actually no, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm understanding this right. They, they, what we have, what is new is this release information about swabs that were taken at a wet market. The swabs basically indiscriminately were swabbing all over this area. And one of the genetic hits that came back from testing the swabs happened to be COVID positive and also to have raccoon dog DNA on it. But there has been no evidence that there is a prevalence of uh, COVID-19 among raccoon dogs or any direct link between uh, the, you know, coon dog, a, a raccoon dog that was infected by COVID as the uh, vector of the uh, transmission from animal to human in the start of the pandemic? Yeah, so um, there is no evidence in the study in that sample linking that specific sample to the start of the pandemic. Now, all of these 73 samples were positive for SARS-CoV-2. That's because the researchers who um, obtained genetic information from these samples only looked at samples that were positive for SARS-CoV-2. So we don't learn from these samples if there was any association of any particular animal with SARS-CoV-2. The only thing we learn is which animals were present in the market. Mm. Uh, can raccoon dogs, if it was the case that raccoon dogs, a raccoon dog had COVID and passed that to a human host and that was the start of the pandemic, wouldn't it be likely that then so raccoon dogs would have some, high, some likelihood of being able to be infected with COVID and we would have raccoon dogs maybe all over the world that had then contracted it back from human beings and but we as far as I, do, do raccoon dogs contract covid do we have any evidence of that because other animals do deer there, in in michigan deer have gotten it dogs and cats i think can get it i don't know how easy it is but uh, do raccoon dogs get it 
yes, there is experimental um, evidence that raccoon dogs can not only um, be infected with SARS-CoV-2, but they can have asymptomatic infections and they can shed enough virus to transmit it to other animals. And that, in fact, was largely the basis of these um, researchers' prior speculations that raccoon dogs could have introduced the um, the, the the raccoon dogs could have introduced the virus to the Wuhan market. Uh, you're a quantitative biologist. Help us understand how your background informs your thinking about what the origin of COVID really was. Well. A lot of the research um, on the origins of COVID is based on quantitative modeling of the early COVID outbreak. Also, a lot of the um, discussions of um, gain-of-function research that researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology are known to have been doing on coronaviruses prior to the beginning of this outbreak uses molecular tools that I use in my own research. Um, so I am familiar with both the, um, you know, general experimental methods that, you know, people use to uh, alter the genetic sequences of virus, viruses in research projects. I'm also familiar with the sort of data analysis that people do mm-hmm. of genetic sequencing data. So that and being I'm familiar the case, with the sort of quantitative modeling that most of these results have been based so on. So that being the case, what do you think is the strongest evidence for COVID origin? My personal opinion is that a, uh, a leak, a lab leak from researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology performing gain-of-function research on coronaviruses is most likely. But I should tell you um, that the origins of COVID uh, are really, they're just not known. So yeah, the fact is we do not know where COVID-19 came from. Different reasonable scientists disagree on this point. It is certainly possible that COVID-19 came from wild animals being sold at the Hunan seafood market in Wuhan. But it is just as possible that SARS-CoV-2 virus was accidentally leaked by the scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Pictures of former President Donald Trump's arrest are circulating on the internet and it's driving people wild. The images are not real, of course, because Trump has not been arrested, but AI-generated pics are fueling anticipation from the anti-Trump and MAGA camps alike. (laughs) Just to reiterate, the pictures are fictional, but Trump haters are basking on what could be if he were to be apprehended. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, of course, is investigating. I was like, when are we going to show them? Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious. It's easy to see why these have gone so viral. They really are a kind of liberal fever dream of what will happen. Um, uh, This is obviously in Again, these are fake images. Yeah, of course. They're obviously in connection to the uh, investigation by Alvin Bragg. Uh, Trump remains very much free. Do you remember that video that, like, it was, again, porn for resistance liberals, basically? Um, It's set to From Russia with Love of uh, all the Trump—it's one of those— 
where like they superimpose Trump's face, but it's moving. You know those kinds of deep the deep fake videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it's not just images and uh, him being arrested and Jared being arrested and all of them. You've never seen that? Oh, it's great. Let me see. Well, no, I, I, I guess I'm not it. in the same. Uh, oh, so good. Resistance lib fantasy right, channel. I'm gonna pull it up. Talk while I pull it up. I mean, so <laughs> this is this is what I Please. don't quite understand is the presumption that images like this are going to be more galvanizing for Democrats than they are Republicans. Mm -hmm. This kind of a scene, if, if Donald Trump is in fact arrested, I, I personally feel like would be very, very bad for Democrats, given that the charges in the New York case are the weaker of the charges as compared to the election denial charges, which actually have to do with the bad thing that Trump actually did, as opposed to trying to cover up his infidelity and what is ultimately a personal matter. Right. So I, I, I don't know why liberals would really put themselves out there as obviously thirsting for an unprecedented arrest of a former president and someone who is leading the Republican nomination and a move that feels very uh, banana republic-y and very much out of character for American politics, it's especially when there is a much better indictment allegedly pending in Georgia, that they could at least have the justification of saying, we're so excited about this because we care so much about democracy. It mirrors Trump's own attitude toward things. Yes. I am your retribution. I yeah. am your retribution. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they, it's been a fantasy to to put him in jail for for years, for the as soon as he started being president, even before that. Yeah, this is you're right. They're stepping on Donald Trump's beat. He's the one who coined lock her up. Yeah. The fever dream of a corrupt politician being thrown in jail for their crimes was one that was originally dreamed up by him. And at the time, Democrats framed the Hillary Clinton lock her up chant as being incredibly despotic and anti-democratic and craven and ill-earned. And while, again, I do think that the election charges against Donald Trump are much more substantive and that the Democrats, frankly, Pretty should much have focused, does. focused on those instead of the yeah. One six, the actions of one six. It's the, I mean, the, the fact that the Raffensperger call isn't playing 24 hours a day on liberal media channels is interesting to me. It's an interesting choice to focus on. Everybody's for democracy until democracy gives you an outcome you don't like, I guess. It's a little bit of that. And, and, then, yeah. and then in 2020, Donald Trump was defeated. So right. the normal election process has been adequate to deal with him. So if you're going to break the... I don't think anyone should be above the law, including the former president. But if you're going to engage in the optics of arresting a former president the way they do in, like, South America, it better be a pretty airtight case. And no one seems to think that this one is all that airtight. Yeah, and I also think that people, when asked about the hypocrisy of not going after George Bush or any other number of former presidents for their war crimes, their, their clear crimes, that instead of saying, well, no, that was different, acknowledging it and saying, well, maybe, yeah, we, we should have. What's the statute of limitations on that? Because mm -hmm. I mean, the likelihood of something like that actually coming to fruition is nil, but at least acknowledging that that was perhaps appropriate and that the reason we haven't done so is because we do have a long history of not treating politicians and other elites in our country and holding them to the same standards as ordinary Americans. Yeah. And well, and we also over-criminalize ordinary Americans. Of course. There's, there's a little bit of, if we balance these things out, that wouldn't necessarily mean 
you know, going after powerful figures with the exact same level of, oh, you filled out your tax form wrong. Absolutely. Now you got to go to jail. Uh, you know, I would distinguish, I've made this distinguishing before, to the procedural crimes and crimes crimes. They can always get you on a procedural crime mm -hmm. if they try hard enough. Because how many times has someone in the course of trying to defend themselves committed perjury or obstruction of justice or one of those things? They didn't, you know, they never, they don't prove that these people, um, actually committed the crime they went after them, what they prove is that when they interrogated them for hours, they said something that they could prove was false. Right. And, you know, that's not, because that's how the justice system operates on the prosecutor side. It's, it's what can I get them for and how can I get them? Yeah. Not, can I make sure that this person is punished for, right, for whatever it is, for, for having an affair with Stormy Daniels, which isn't a crime, or for, or for, and lying about it, or for, or for, you know, trying to throw the, uh, trying to influence the election. Well, maybe I can't get them for that, but I can get them for X, Y, and Z thing having to do with exactly how they handle the, the, their own defense, right. which is not, that's not really justice. Right. And to that point, Hillary Clinton, of course, was fined by the FEC for very similar kinds of uh, election mm -hmm. money handling payment violations during her right. uh, last campaign. So why is it people are raising that? I think it's a and very reasonable question. It's incredibly complicated and <laughs> easy to make those mistakes. Well, sure. But also, I, I mean, I don't think it was a mistake to yeah. use campaign money to do the research to try to come up with this steel dossier information, which ultimately was proven to be inaccurate and, a, and, a, and fraudulent. But, you know, why is it that when Hillary Clinton is found to have done that, she's going to hit with a fine, personally only like an $8,000 fine, although the DNC was fined about $100,000, when we're talking about literally handcuffing and frog marching uh, Donald Trump into jail, and not just talking about it, but fantasizing about it so vividly that the internet is now filled with deep fake photos of Donald Trump uh, fleeing the cops. There was one that we saw earlier with him running around armed, uh, you know, about to take people down, I guess, in retribution. I mean, it's absurd. Mm -hmm. why, are we, why are we at this place? And, and who on the left is going to acknowledge the dissonance between uh, how liberals came at the Hillary Clinton lock them up chance and what we're seeing now play out on, on liberal Twitter? Yeah, indeed. Well, that's a wrap on the first week of the relaunch rising. We so love our new set. There's the there's the music. Uh, I'm gonna be jamming, jamming. To this all uh, all weekend. How about you? Um, yeah, I I have taken to doing a little uh, chair dancing when this music comes on. We're not quite at the stage where I think we're singing it in the hallways, but give us another week. Let us know what you think They'll about this. They'll be playing this. it on TikTok unless TikTok is banned. Yes, clip clip rising videos for TikTok. Yeah. These are theme music underneath. Let's let's. Take the, get the most advantage out of this yes, program. Yes, we leave this to you, ended. our fans, our people <laughs> watching, uh, people who, uh, sometimes people just watching us clip things and yeah. the, the uh, infamous Bethany Mandel clip, which now everyone and their grandmothers everyone has their grandmother. seen, was uh, just some people who watch the show regularly who clipped it and it was seen by millions of yeah, people. Yeah, shout out, shout out to the boys at the Vanguard who do a lot of great coverage of our coverage here at Rising. We'll be back next week, of course, with our new music and graphics and absolutely our stellar news coverage. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And check us out on Roku and Flex TV if you haven't yet. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.